0: Welcome to the Danny Goldberg Rock and Rolls Hour. In this podcast, Danny shares his longtime connection to the path of the heart, as well as his very engaged life of social activism. If you are interested in supporting Danny's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Danny. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg and this is Rock and Rolls and I'm doing another podcast with my oldest friend, David Silver, who is well known to listeners of this network for what he's done in mind rolling and has a, an illustrious series of accomplishments that you can look up. Uh, Thank you, Danny. Hi. <laughs> hi, hi. Hi. And good to see you. Uh, it's good to uh, it's good to hang out with you again, David. And um You know, we're recording this on a Sunday. Uh, I don't know if you watch the Sunday news shows. Uh, This is Sunday, uh, April 16th when we're recording it. So by the time people hear it, it'll be a few weeks out of date. But uh, as with the last uh, several dozen Sundays, the conversation uh, has revolved around President Trump, uh, a phrase that many of us thought would never exist only a few months ago. And um, I've really been struggling with how to think about politics and public affairs and the anguish that so many people feel about uh, what feels like a reversal of, of, of progress on the one hand, and my, you know, our professed belief that we are souls, not roles, that, that every human being is created by God, and that... Um, and our experience that anger and polarization doesn't make things better, even if it's temporarily cathartic. And I know you've been writing a lot and thinking a lot about these things. And I'm just wondering, where is your head at at the moment on all this?
1: Well, Danny, first of all, that's a, a really succinct and lucid introduction because you just you you nailed it. It it really is a, a conflict between our emotions and our, for better, want of a better word, our spiritual grasp. I agree with you. We are all souls. I think the universe is, uh, does not make mistakes, but it's extraordinarily difficult for us to watch, a, um, a procedure of deconstructing and destroying many of the humanitarian benefits that were created in the last eight years. In fact, in the last 45 years, uh, we could say since, you know, um, the the beginnings of, of the safety net, the beginnings of... Yeah, farm- in some, in
0: some respects, one can even go back to the New Deal. It seems like some of what's going on is is a deconstruction of, of those ideas uh, that happened before either of us were alive, but that we were born into, or more, the safety net and so forth.
1: Well, you know, yes, I I, I agree, because that's when it really started. And in England, it started by David Lloyd George, who instituted the first National Health Service in 19, I believe, 1916, during the the, the First World War. And then the Labour Party initiated free health care in 1945 when they defeated uh, the victorious Winston Churchill, which is one of the the most amazing, you know, turnarounds in history. Um, But there's no question in my mind that, uh, you know, this is wrong policy and inhuman, inhumane, all of those things that, and it isn't just Trump, it's this, this, you know, this cabinet that he's put together, which almost feels like every one of them is, des- every one of them was designed to destroy what had been done before in that particular department, Pruitt and DeVos and Perry and all these people. So to answer your question a little bit, um, how do we deal with that psychologically and in actual life, in activism and what do we do? For me, it's shifting of moods. When I was at your house on the night of the um, election, I think there were, I don't know, 20, 30 people there, terrific people. And we were all completely stunned. Uh, I was somewhat drunk because I had a terrible toothache and drank a lot of the Canadian club whiskey that um, that was there that I know you don't drink, but someone brought it. So I was sort of – I was kind of buzzed. And it wasn't enjoyable, but it didn't really hit me, the the tremendous – Uh, you know, almost cataclysmic thing that happened until days later, and then my mood dipped. Now, where are we, four months later, five months later? You know, I've adapted to it, so I'm no longer enraged. However, the triggers on CNN, MSNBC, and the rest of it, every time, every time I see this guy Pruitt talking, uh, this guy, head of the EPA, who sued the EPA dozens of times, or any of them, particularly Sessions, Um, something rises in me, which is akin to rage. And the only difference now between me and when I was younger is that now I have some kind of apparatus in me to at least assuage that rage to at least say, okay, you're not going to indulge it. Just, and no, it's not repression. It's just a bigger perspective. You put it perfectly in your intro, you know, if we're souls, not roles, then this is just a small part of our total experience, and therefore we can't get too crazed uh, in ourselves. However, having said that, how could one not be absolutely turned off by the pretty much every decision that's been made uh, since January 20th? Everyone has been inimical, completely inimical to everything I believe in. So that's a pretty tall order to maintain equilibrium without being accused of being complacent uh, or just not wanting to be involved, Ramdas himself, who both Danny and I know, obviously, and many of you do, said it, it, recently in an email that they do from that foundation, "To say that you're done with politics is is, is wrong action," he said. Mm. "You you must keep aware of your fellow citizens and fellow world citizens." Um, You know, condition and whether it's being attacked in a way which is immoral and feels completely wrong. So, in answer to your question, no answer that's particularly interesting to me. But on the other hand, it is a balance. It's a balance between knowing that this is wrong and we should try and turn it around in the most pragmatic and sensible way, not just by hysterical yelling and shouting and calling him all kinds of names. The balance between that and not. Allowing it to seep into your bloodstream, so you are in fact consumed by a dangerous uh, emotional um, paradigm, which is: I hate Trump. I hate all the rest of them. I hate the people who voted for him. I hate America. I hate the world. Ergo, I hate God.
0: Right. It's um, you know this. As you know, I have uh, researched the sixties recently. You know, particularly the year nineteen sixty-seven. I have this book coming out about it. In Search of the Lost Gourd. And, um, you know, my my hero in retrospect for some time from that period has been Martin Luther King, who, um, you know, famously said, uh, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. So that's the aspiration. and And he's the role model. The problem is I'm not Dr. King and um and getting into that frame of mind is tricky and it's particularly tricky i find because i don't want to uh fall short on compassion for people who are suffering i mean for example as we speak uh some order was just signed that's allow that's going to allow states to defund planned parenthood which is going to mean you know thousands uh, thousands of of of, of women uh, who can't otherwise afford medical care are going to be deprived of it. Uh, uh, the the um, the this uh, uh, propensity now for uh, bombing, um, you know, people are getting killed, and uh, it's not clear that all of these things actually have anything to do with the security of the United States. You and I both came of age during the Vietnam period when. Originally, the war was advertised as um, uh, fighting communism, which was going to enslave people and which was a dark force, and, and and soon, certainly before the end of the 60s, the people that really understood what was going on there knew that that was uh, not true, that it had nothing to do with com- you know, any threat to the United States, and yet the war continued for so many more years and so many people dying and um, and how to uh, have compassion and honor the suffering and, you know, in whatever little part one can do to, to try to help, you know, each of us have different capacities. None of us are going to fix everything in our lifetime. Um, so ha- ha- I don't want to lack compassion for the people that are upset, nor do I identify with kind of a constant um, perpetual outrage, which somehow seems to Add to the problem, um, and and you know I, I I must say it's it's hard to find the space sometimes in my own head that encompasses both of these both of these things. Um, uh, you know what what are the things that people are doing uh, is inspiring you? What what is is anything in terms of trying to shine some light into the world? What what are the kind of things that have that have felt good to you?
1: Well, uh, the enormous response by Democrat. Democratic donors to races, one of which is happening tomorrow in Georgia, one of which just happened in Kansas City, uh, whereby people of, I think, goodwill and and good heart have opened their pockets and and made it a tight race in those two. They lost the one in Kansas, but not by many. Uh, The one in Georgia is much more complicated because there are 19 Republican candidates. And if if the Democrat doesn't get 50 percent, then it's a runoff between the winner and he could lose, you know. As, you, as 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 is expected in Georgia.
0: Well, these are two districts that have been Republican uh, seats, and tr- changing those is 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 hard. Uh, yeah. The Kansas one was an incredibly steep climb. I think Trump won by twenty-seven points or thirty-five points or something like that, and then and then the new Republican. Last week it was seven, so th- th- that was sort of a symbolic victory that they reduced the margin. But still, you got to actually win some of these things, and the Georgia one, like you said, might might be more complex. But that's yeah, there does seem to be an activation of uh, of non conservatives to to feel a more uh, uh, intense desire to um,
1: to engage uh, the you know the so that yeah, I hear you on that. I yeah. mean you know i i take my a lot of this thought from you actually because we've discussed this so many times and you know those of you who don't know uh, danny was head of the aclu in california and also ran uh, a thing called air america which was a brilliant radio network that really which you know al franken and Rachel Maddow and various people were involved with. It was those are the kind of things when one has some kind of of authority in media, which Danny certainly had, but in music, uh, but used that particular platform to try and and, you know, leverage or leverage. I think probably the right way of saying it, you know, in a way that didn't. There wasn't just hot air because a lot of the stuff that's going on is just insulting Trump and he's easily insultable. Hello. I mean. The only people I don't mind doing that are, are Saturday Night Live. The only thing that's benefited as far as I can see from this administration is Lorne Michaels and Saturday Night Live because that's been basically moribund in the ground for as far as I'm concerned <laughs> decades. And now I, I don't watch it like most people, do, but I YouTube it the next day. And this morning I did look at, at the Alec Baldwin uh, thing where, you know, and, and Jimmy Fallon playing uh, Kushner. And it was hysterical and I'm not easily, I don't easily laugh, but I thought it was brilliant. And as long as they keep harping on that, a lot of people watch Saturday night live. Now, whether people who are bent on Trump and on destroying the uh, safety net and destroying what's been created, uh, I don't think Saturday night live means anything to them. But I think when Lorne Michaels had Trump on the show, I just wanted to strangle him. Now I see some real satire going on and, That does affect people. Mar does it. You know, John Oliver does it. They're all on it. Colbert has been hammering Trump for, you know, a year and a half. That means something to me because media is obviously a part of the game here. So democratic response by donors is very important to me. The media taking a stance of showing the ridiculousness. The only problem with that is no matter what they do, it doesn't seem as surreal as the actuality itself. Well, let me just (laughs) let me just ask you this.
0: One of the things that you've done, first of all, to clarify, I was chairman of the ACLU Foundation board in Southern California. uh, It was run by a great heroic woman named Ramona Ripston and today run by a man named Hector Villagra. I was not the person running it, but I was very involved with it. I'm still on the board in Southern California. And to the extent that people have disposable money to help of this country i i think the aclu is uh, and planned parenthood to me are the two organizations i always recommend because they're doing on the ground granular work that's helping human beings in a way that no other institution can but that's that that's a tangent what i wanted to get to is that you've also that these shows which i also share your enthusiasm for colbert saturday Night live and bill moore etc um tend to speak primarily to people who didn't vote for Donald Trump. And there's this other America that is variously described. You know, uh, that some of it is geographic, some of it is religious, some of it is based on education and other uh, background. And they're certainly uh, usually exposed to different media, different information, some of it religious, some of it talk radio. But I know that you've spent some time in what other people would call red America in the last um, in the last decade some in in Utah with with Mormons and and in Oklahoma where we both are friends with the Hansen family and those are two extremely red states and I'm sure a lot of people you were talking to there are not necessarily the people that are watching Colbert um, how do you how do how do you think uh, one can find a common humanity with people that don't share our sense of humor or cultural references or assumptions, but but who uh, who don't really want to hurt people, they're just they're just operating with a different set of assumptions and different information. Uh, you know, wh- what did you learn from those experiences that would be relevant to
1: the cu- to the current moment? Well, you know, I would have to sort of be cliched about this and say that the only sort of ameliorating Conditions there were basically Socratic, you know, of, of asking questions and asking questions that were based on the idea of, well, you know, if you love Jesus and it is Easter Sunday today, if you love Jesus, do you think really that Jesus would be a worshiper of guns? Do you really? I mean, and, and the answer to that is always, well, you know, freedom is important and guns are important to freedom. And then it's why are there, you know, so it was kind of always that kind of exchange. And it was quite civilized. But on the other hand, I have to say, um, on certain matters like creativism, uh, climate, the horror of climate, uh, you know, deterioration, in oklahoma because everybody i knew at some point or other was involved with the oil industry which if you don't know started in oklahoma Hmm. and then at a certain point it moved from tulsa oklahoma to to houston when they found a lot more oil in texas but the the sort of you know dna of those places is often based upon what made them prosperous yeah yeah Uh, and in oklahoma it was certainly oil and some of the conversations i had were with some pretty powerful people in that industry they were um gentlemanly and they certainly didn't yell and they certainly didn't say that I was wrong, but there was that sort of, you know, that sort of, it's like an incantation of sort. It's, it's a way of talking, which is very sort of can be very patronizing. However, one persists and one persists and eventually they see at least you have a logical framework for the dialectic. They can't argue with that. What they can argue with is saying, you know, you're a bunch of shitheads. Because no one ever is going to respond to that. So when I look at my Facebook page and my friends, you know, my my particular echo chamber, um, I see the large number of people are just at this point um, to almost two years into Trump's, you know, predominance in both the campaign. And now, of course, in the White House, they're still talking about his fat ass. They're still obsessed with this russia thing which may be very very nefarious we do not know but it may be by this time it nothing will come of that and then all this time will have been wasted but a lot of people are doing that i think it's better to dialogue it's always better to dialogue always i mean how many times have we sat on a plane i sat next to a police chief fairly recently and you know a new york guy highway patrol police chief and we spent the entire four hours uh, talking about uh, conservatism and health care and so forth. And uh, the funniest thing was, that just before he was getting here, he had cancer. Mm. Uh, he had been one of the first responders. He rode on his Harley-Davidson from Long Island City through to the World Trade Center and stayed there and did that remarkable thing, which none of us, none, I certainly couldn't do. And he got cancer mm. and he was in recovery. And then we were very friendly and, and he was listening to things because I was going to, and then I asked him sort of off the subject. I said, so given what you've done, you've been doing this for f- 35 years. What is the most amazing thing that happened in all that time as a police chief? And he said, oh, that's easy. Um, I was always asked by Rolling Stone's management to lead the group of cycl- motorcyclists who protected who are the entourage of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. And I got to know them both. And that was the highlight of my career And that I wished he, we weren't getting off at that point because I was about to say to him, well, did you ever hear street fighting man or sit with the devil or give me shelter? I mean, do you know what they're really about? I mean, despite the fact that stones incredibly apolitical, but you know, there was a point of common ground. One finds common ground. Uh, I met people in Oklahoma who knew Leon Russell and he was, you know, a progressive person. And so you find common ground. Is that an answer to your question? Not really, but it, it, it's, I, am always trying to find common ground. That's all I, that's all I can do because you can't necessarily, it's almost, it's like in the bloodstream of these people that there's something wrong with the, the concept of government and that, That's an age old American problem. I mean, did Tocqueville said, didn't he? Yes, he did. He said, America's a country without a philosophy. That's one of his famous statements that he felt that America in his time, which is obviously a long time ago, didn't really follow ideologies or paradigms created by ideologies like safety net and healthcare and public transportation and infrastructure and climate. He felt that America would just go any way it wanted to depending on its on on its whim. He had many great things to say about democracy in America. But one of the things he didn't like was the fact that in his opinion, America was not headed for a philosophical uh, agreement, if you like. (laughs) What was the great
0: philosophical uh, theory of uh, France?
1: Uh, Well, you know, kill the the aristocrats, aristocrats, guillotine them. (laughs) But I mean, at least, you know, liberty, equality, fraternity, they invented those three, that little triptych. And there definitely was um, some change in the basis of France for a while until Rootspear took it over, and then he was like Stalin. And, you know, sort of obviated everything that that thing stood for so yeah you're right it's you know <laughs> i just
0: wonder yeah i don't know what to make you know i i have um you, you know i mean obviously you grew up in in britain and have lived here for you know what 50 years or 40 more than 40 years so and 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 more an american than anything but i i i um i do find it sometimes useful to think of these problems as human problems not necessarily american problems because there's not certainly in terms of uh Western Europe, uh, you know, colonialism, racism, um, uh, you know, uh, one percentism, uh, all are just as, uh, you know, quite prominent there. Uh, Although I will say that something happened after World War II in Western Europe that resulted in in better safety nets, better health care, better systems so that, uh, you know, people could Get education than, than what we ended up doing doing here. It used to be that America was a place where there was more so-called upward mobility, and I think now there's actually less uh, than than in a lot of other countries. Um, of course, you you chose to move here from 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 the UK. What 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 what, what do you um, what was it about America that that made you want to be here? Because obviously, <laughs> politically, the UK uh, didn't have a draft. You know, in Vietnam, we did. Uh, right. The 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 UK did have a socialized medicine. We didn't, um, and yet you wanted to be here. So what? 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 what
1: well, <laughs> you know, I, I, the answer to that is a great come down from any kind of aspiration. Because actually, what happened is I got a job here, and I was totally no. But you stayed. But you stayed. Well, I married an American, right? But, and I and I had ch- American children, right? But what you know. Pragmatically, that's what happened. I got a job at a university, which I should never have got because I didn't know what they needed to know to teach there. But I did it because I wrote a, a, a postgraduate uh, thesis, which managed to get to Tufts, and they hired me. And you know, But previous to that, uh, you know, uh, Bob Dylan said recently, or not recently, he said something which sort of explains this. He said, you know, Elvis and rock and roll got me out of prison. I didn't even know I was in prison. Yeah. And there was, you know, for me, where, where that, did he, where did he say that? I just read it somewhere. It was in mm. one of those interviews that he's given recently for about, the new out, al- for the new in connection I, with the new album. Yeah. I, I think so. Yes. Mm. And not that I knew anything about Bob Dylan when I came here much, but the American contribution to the world for me at that time was definitely music and movies. Mm. And, and, you know, it, it's it, 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 was always interesting to me that British movies were absolutely awful. They became better in the in the late sixties with the Angry Young Man movement and right, all that. Right. But but previous to that they were just ridiculous. And English music was, was just pathetic. It was some kind of pale imitation of Elvis and Eddie Cochran and Right. This is it, prior prior to the Beatles. Right, right. Yeah. Right. So the Beatles when they happened were a huge like shock to the system, particularly as they came from the place that my family was from, and I was very like amazed. But if I'd have had to choose a country to come to, I would have come to the States only because culturally it was completely fascinating to me. I did my thesis on uh, the relationship of Wilhelm Reich to uh, Saul Bellow's later novels. So I was really into Saul Bellow and Philip Roth and and Malamud and, and James Baldwin and all of that. And I thought these were all amazing, amazing an- uh, analyzers and expressors about the American experience. So it was rich and all of that for me so it, when i came here it it, it was only amplified because i learned a lot more then about people like theodore dreiser and people who wrote books about the conflict between the the proletariat if you like and the uh, sort of growing elite and so america was fascinating to me uh, however even after all these decades i still you know just to go off subject for a second or not quite uh, i go back to Facebook. Um, I got involved in a thread about three or four months ago where uh, a Trump follower sort of managed to get into one of my echo chamber friends thread and he was denouncing healthcare in a way that was extremely harsh. And I thought I'm going to get into this. So I said to him, I wrote and said, my sister, my younger sister uh, was extremely ill when she was young and had a tremendous problem with her spine. And we were all scared shitless about it. And eventually uh, she had to go into a hospital. She was in a hospital, I believe, for 14 months. Oh, my God. A beautiful, a beautiful hospital in North London. And she was operated on by a major surgeon. And she was there for all that time. And it was free. And I mentioned this to this Trump guy and said it was free and it was good. Now, it may have deteriorated a little bit since then because, you know, maybe it has. I, it, there's entropy involved in it. However, I mentioned to him. That how could he oppose uh, a decent healthcare system for people who didn't have the money to pay for, you know, any other way? And, you know, about 20 minutes later, he wrote back to me and it was quite a long paragraph. He wrote and he said, first of all, thank you for being a gentleman and not insulting me for being a Trump follower. Thank you for that. Right. Secondly, secondly, I hope your sister is 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 fine and healthy. Thirdly, I didn't know this, that it had that kind of, you know, that kind of potential. I still fear uh, uh, governmental, uh, you know, control of healthcare, But I really appreciate the fact that you're willing to have a debate with me. Right. And I wrote back to him and it was all kind of self-serving. I said, thank you very much. And he then wrote back, good luck to you and thank you. Mm hmm. And that was my one little example of something which happened in a in a in that kind of dialectic, if you like, that you have on Facebook, that just made my day. Yeah, yeah. And I also realized that when I was in Utah, you say I, I worked for months and months and months in 2001, after we just finished working together, Danny, and and with only Mormons and elders from the Mormon community also, and I, at the risk of sounding like a real dweeb. I have rarely met people who were more um, kind of heart Mm. and sweet of temperament and um, caring. Uh, The actual religion itself, you know, (laughs) real problems. Uh, No African-Americans were allowed to be involved in any real way until the late 70s. Their attitude towards women and all of them having seven children is, is queer and all of that. But the actual people I met there were really sweet people. And I've kept in touch with them. And, you know, we, we talked about all this. Now, I have to say that in, in 2016, most of the, the people I know who worked for Romney in 2012 uh, were aghast, appalled at Trump in a way that the evangelicals weren't. They weren't at all taken by him. They said, no, this guy is is, is a miscreant. He doesn't stand for anything that the, 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 um, the church as we know it could possibly support or or even you know contemplate interesting that they- I think I think the Mormon
0: culture because they were kind of an oppressed minority um, have internalized resistance to anything that ostracizes mi- minorities similar to I think the more enlightened parts of the Jewish co- co- community I, I I just think that's a that's a thing I remember when when I was involved with the, um, lyrics issue, which, you know, in, back in another century, uh, when we were worried about censorship of rock lyrics, one of the people who joined the anti-censorship cause was Donny Osmond, who never had a lyric that anyone wanted to censor. And I asked him why. And he says, cause I'm a Mormon and we, we grew up, uh, worried about, uh, other religions, uh, being prejudiced against us. And this to me is a religious freedom issue, you know, um, but at the same time, you know, Utah is, a, I think, the reddest state in the union in terms of the percentage that they typically vote in presidential elections. And even though there was another candidate, Evan McMullen, right, was supposed to pull the Romney voters. But so the people yeah. that you that you were friendly with would have been sort of Evan McMullen
1: Romney types, not not the people who voted for Trump. Well, sort of, but they were they were artists, you know, and two composers and two producers and uh, Marie Osmond's husband, Brian Blossel. So I didn't meet the Osmonds when I was there. Um, All I can say is that they treated me with enormous love and respect. And we did have conversations that were political. Yeah. And still do. Yeah. And and the response was not knee jerk extreme right proto fascist conservatism. It wasn't. It was all based on the idea that that Christ came to uh, the world, uh, you know, to bring forgiveness and love and compassion. Well, that wasn't too different from, you know, what uh, my guru or our gurus or teachers are saying all the time. Same thing. Same right, thing. Right. Kindness, loving kindness and all that. Now, the fact that they have primitive concepts of, of in my opinion, of the role of women. Mm. Depressed me enormously. Yeah. Uh, and I was shocked to find that most of the women I met there were very happy. So there's a certain, you know, sort of uh, acceptance and delight in just being a housewife and and not being, you know, um, a Sandberg type woman leaning forward, leaning in. It, it was none of that. The women seemed to be not oppressed and not depressed, though. So they accepted it. And I, that's fine. I mean, it's another culture. They're almost like a little country in the middle of another country. Yeah. So, you know. But, you know, to get back to your real, you know, hard question, which is worth contemplating, my lesson on that Facebook experience with the Trump guy was that if you actually act with civility, some people are somewhat affected by that because their concept of liberals is just as harsh as our concept of them. Right. So when they see, you know, on television, if they ever watch, uh, you know, channels that aren't Fox, um, what they see are people, you know, being very uh, you know, very patronizing. Right, right. That's the word
0: you keep hearing is patronizing, condescending that they feel, uh, disrespected.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. And, and so, um, maybe the first step, and it's, it's a little bit sort of hard to believe that this has any value, but maybe the first step is that civility and that inquiry. As to, you know, we understand a lot of this country is suffering from foreclosures, not being able to pay uh, money for anything and living right next to homelessness almost because of the, you know, the, uh, the cost of living has gone up and and salaries have not. And people are desperate and saw, you know, many, many years, not just eight years of Obama, but I think they would say 16 years at least where a uh, 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 an elite obviously was growing in strength and the mass of the population was suffering in, 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 a, in a way that was tangible. So if as long as you know that that's the case and you can relate to that. And then I think Bernie Sanders, I saw the thing he did with Chris Hayes a, few, a month or two ago with Trump supporters. And what a genius he is on his, yeah. on his, on his feet because he was talking to minors. Yeah. And it was incredible because some of them were really down on him at first. And I don't know. It may have been in West Virginia. I think it was. But anyway, there were miners there and there was one miner who stood up for Trump all the way through. And he had him sort of close to him. He was sort of sitting two two chairs away from Bernie. And Bernie was incredibly um, thoughtful when talking to this guy. But it's funny because when uh, Bernie mentioned that health care, as we know, it was endangered. And that instead of it becoming a better system it would become a, a medieval system. This guy reacted as if he really as if that was the first time he'd heard it. Hmm. And he said, well, no, I, I, I don't, I don't know about that. And then some guy stood up in the audience who was also a minor, I, I believe, uh, a very normal sort of person. And he said, I think it's really bizarre that this gentleman has come down from New England And has come here and told us things which we are not being told by people who are from here. And Mm -hmm. I want you all to I want you all to, you know, to honor this man. And in that little moment, I saw the hope that as soon as uh, if, if, if Trump and his cronies actually do. What they say they're gonna do and and they're doing it quietly because there's all this deflection of wars in North Korea and remember and Ivanka and all this. Meanwhile things are getting passed in Congress and and executive orders are being made. As soon as these people see that certain um staples of their life, which they rely on food stamps, free health care, uh public transportation, all of this, if that starts deteriorating, I cannot see except for the deepest part of the core, them not turning. They're not turning towards Bernie Sanders or the next generation of Bernie Sanders
0: well that's uh that's optimistic I hope you're right i am I'm really impressed with Bernie also uh, his enduring uh, relevance you know he's he uh, you know it was' almost a novelty at the beginning and it, it and he's he's clearly a long distance runner and I hope and and I and hopefully there's younger people being inspired by you know what what he's uh, what he's uh, what he's doing um uh, you know i guess the um the, I, you know i guess the thing to watch for is 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 how the blame is deflected because uh, you know there that's that's somehow these for 30 or 40 years they've been able to convince people um uh, that uh, that the source of their problems were, uh, you know, racial minorities or immigrants or liberals, um, and somehow the the uh, the liberals have not done a very good job, uh, with the exception of Bernie, of of reaching through. But yeah, I think he does open up a channel of shared um, humanity that's uh, different than the than the liberal than the liberal cliche. I want to just change subjects back to the sixties for a minute. Because you know, when I was at uh, when I was at Tom Hayden's memorial service, um, uh, you know, a, a mutual friend of both of ours um, came up to me and said, uh, and said that his uh, his son in high school, a seventeen year old son in high school, was going to interview him for the high school newspaper about why we failed. We meaning sort of the anti war movement, the, the the left of the sixties and all that sort of a thing, and. Um, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot because first of all, I do find people of our generation um, there is a melancholy sense of failure that you hear from people particularly that were involved with social change movements. And um, you know, i I'm trying to, again to balance out sort of the superficial feelings that go with it with a deeper truth because the deeper truth is, to me, it's not particularly realistic to think that one group of people or even one generation is going to sort of fix all the problems of the human race that have been going on for thousands of years, whether, whether this is sort of part of a divine plan, which people wiser than me say it is, or whether it's just the nature of the human race. Uh, it's just almost infantile to think, gee, We're supposed to fix this in five Mm -hmm. years, ten years, or, you know, a a single generation. It's it's thousands of years. You go back to any century, any decade, some of the same problems of violence and nonviolence, selfishness and egalitarianism exist. And on the other hand, um, of course, it's important to find out how how mistakes were made to avoid making them again. And so that at least over time, things get... uh, get better but but uh y- you know uh, a lot of the people who listen to this and who I talk to are of our so-called baby boom generation and we are you know later in life you know more behind us than in front of us um and uh what what are your what are your thoughts about that that feeling uh, and question of is it a is it a failure of 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 uh, you know how how to deal with that feeling of failure in a way that's intellectually honest but not sort of just the nihilistic.
1: Well, um, much of the resistance in the 60s was cultural. Not all of it, obviously. Uh, Chicago 68 proves that the marches against the war prove that Um, the existence, the very existence of Tom Hayden and and Abby Hoffman and so forth. However, um, even at the time I never thought that the the hippie movement would be much more than cultural, even though it was much more than cultural and has been completely revisionist, re, re, revised, let's put it that way, by those who weren't there uh, saying that, you know, it was all LSD and beads and granola, which it was not. Because, you know, I lived in Cambridge much of that time and Massachusetts and every single person I knew, no matter whether they were wearing beads or not, or whether they were smoking pot or not, went to every single march and and turned up at MIT for climate conferences. I went to several things in 1967, 68 at MIT, which were discussions by MIT uh, professors about the deterioration of the climate and the effect of carbon upon the world. Wow. Uh, You know, and they were happening all the time now. Cambridge was a, a place with two hundred and sixty thousand students or Boston. Yeah, yeah. And as an elite in that sense. But there were a lot of people who looked like hippies at those events, and they certainly liked the dead, and they certainly went to see Buffalo Springfield and and, and Phil Oaks and so forth. They did love those people, but they were also politically concerned. The the, the thing is that ultimately um, it 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 didn't have an effect. I don't think it had a big effect upon the middle country any more than it, it would have now, because you know, I went to Berkeley, and I, went, I was at the People's Park riot. I got tear gassed and, you know, all that. And so at Berkeley you saw it, and you were at Berkeley, so you know that. And in Cambridge I saw it, and at Columbia I saw it. And uh, that. But, you know, the rest of the country was petering along, you know, and, you know, Nixon was elected, and, you know, it, it wasn't as if there was a huge effect there. So by osmosis, would it have a particular effect upon the whole society if it didn't have a particular effect at the time upon the whole society. Having said that, I think it it had an enormous effect upon youth, and the youth of today gets a lot from that time. They really do, I'm often asked by young people, and I mean people in their 20s or younger, wow, what a great time that was. And I never say, oh, well, you didn't know what it was really like. I always say, yes, it was. It was a great time because there was a sense of community. Even if it didn't work, there was a sense of community amongst millions of people who didn't know each other. And, you know, you could go to Berkeley or you could go to Seattle or you could go to Cambridge and find people of like mind, even if they didn't, you know, take drugs or even if they didn't have long hair. There was a lot of it going on. And I think that I I happen to believe, the cultural thing has bled through to now. And that the political thing, as weird as it is, and as polarized as it is now, I think a lot of the people who are in the political sphere are still affected by the um, constructs of political thought in 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 Chomsky, Zinn, uh, and so on. By there, the way, there's... Chomsky has a
0: new book out. Oh yeah, uh, that's based on um, that's based on uh, on his um uh um uh, uh a movie um oh, yeah. about him lately and it's it's very good i'm i'm looking it up now uh because i want to just say it it's it's um it it'll it'll i'll get it in a minute but it's it's um noam chomsky website chomsky you gotta hand it to him books um <laughs> Right. Oh God, he has so many books. It's just ridiculous. Um, yeah, Requiem for the American Dream, The oh. Ten Principles of Concentration of Wealth and Power. Noam Chomsky, and um, you know, it's based on. I guess people made a documentary by that name and um, and uh, 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 adapted it to the book. And uh, it's uh, it's a more user friendly than some of his books. I find. He's always a compelling thinker. I, I wouldn't say I agree with him 100% of the time, but certainly 80 to 90%. He's a brilliant guy. But this is this is less dense, more clear, uh, easier to digest, and quite helpful. And it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you knew him when you were in, in Cambridge. I've never met him, but I was struck by the fact that, you know, in the last couple of years, he's been sort of this voice of reason on the left. You know, he was always perceived as the extreme left and almost... Um, uh, you, you know, contemptuous of conventional liberalism. B- but in the context of sort of the post-occupy left, he's 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 kind of an elder. You know, like, for example, he said he was voting for Hillary Clinton. He disagreed with her about a lot of things, obviously the left of her, but he had no problem making the distinction in a general election. And, um, and this is a pretty good overview and a worthy uh, successor to what Howard Zinn did years ago, of of kind of uh, trying to contextualize American history, so I I uh, I recommend it, and uh, uh, I hope that the people who listen to these podcasts and figure out what to put up online to link with it, link link that book. I, I think it's it's worth reading, and it's it's a relatively easy read, a much easier read than most of his books. But to go
1: back to it, did did you know him? No, not at all. Yeah. I, I I would see him at Eugene McCarthy. Rallies. Right. And I I worked for McCarthy. So um, my one of my fondest memories was being in a a kind of a Winnebago traveling around uh, Massachusetts with um, Eugene McCarthy and Howard Zinn. And that's how I got to know Zinn. Because I had a TV show at the time, which was sort of radical. And and so they invited me to do this. I was honored, you know. But I did get to know Zinn. I didn't get to know McCarthy. He was not, you know, the warmest, friendliest guy. No, he no. Was great. no. He was great. But, he, no. he, you know, and I was also moving towards Robert Kennedy so heavily <laughs> during this thing that I, I, I felt tremendously sort of caught between that as a person. But I did know Zinn. A little bit, and he yeah. was on my TV show. And he was so, I mean, he just was so clear and so penetrating. And his book, You Know the History of the United States, just hipped me to my goodness. I thought that I had ideas about the origins of the United States, and I was ignorant compared with what he talked about, particularly Columbus, Cortez, you know, uh, Pizarro, all these people who came and colonized and did a lot of horrendous things and it's only fairly recently that people have cottoned on to this i think zinn was a huge influence upon the student population there and then later you know sort of everybody and you know you can't deny that these people exist it's not like you know the, so far the books have not been burned and the books are available and hopefully you know it won't develop into the nightmare of of that a lot of people had on november 20th uh, november when was, November sixth seventh when, when the election was about oh my god we're heading towards Nazi Germany uh I never really thought that although it's pretty bad but that i think is not something a line that the United States will cross unless there is a war well um, that's
0: the yeah. let's let's uh let's just say uh, uh, as we end this um Again, this, we're not tied to the news cycle on this podcast, but in general, um, there's no question that uh, presidents uh, are the commanders in chief. They control the military. There are a lot of uh, complicated situations in the world. I was not somebody... I, I thought Obama was admirable in terms of the Iran deal and resisting war with Syria, and yet I also was worried that he was too aggressive with the drone attacks. Uh, the surveillance state and other things. So I guess I'm more of a dove than than even he was. And yet compared to uh, his predecessor, George W. Bush and his successor, you, you know, he, he had a sense of restraint that's uh, that to me is admirable. But there's this um, split in the Democratic Party of sort of the uh, interventionist Democrats and the more pacifist Democrats. I'm personally in the pacifist camp, but there's no question that 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 Trump has shored up his popularity by aligning with sort of the conventional foreign policy establishment, uh, some of whom are the so-called neocons, the military, and that a lot of Democrats, including John Kerry, who was Secretary of State under uh, Obama's second term, uh, praised for this sort of bombing of uh, Syria. and um, I worry about uh, I worry about the um the capacity of wars and military conflicts to uh, divert uh, all the other energy of a society—that's certainly been the history, going back to World War One, Vietnam, the first Gulf War—and uh, um, you know, it is, it is, uh, it is uh, nerve-wracking because there's uh, there's a lot of different agendas other than Vladimir Putin's that are at play.
1: Yeah, and. You know, I actually wanted to sort of finish with a quote from De Tocqueville, which applies. He said, uh, despotism often presents itself as the repairer of all the ills suffered, the supporter of just rights, defender of the oppressed and founder of order. And this was all those years ago, you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you could you could just put that right into a, a, an anti-Trump diatribe. That um, he did do that in his so-called populist campaign. Uh, The defender of you, I'm going to defend you against these liberals. I'm going to defend you against Planned Parenthood and abortion, all this stuff. And that's my fear, is that if a security question comes up, you know, whereby it's not okay to protest in the the, the streets because there's an active war against such as North Korea, and it would be, uh, you know, I mean, we were often called traitors in 1968, you know, we were. Yeah. You know, how could you possibly be protesting when American troops are fighting and dying in Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos? And that's my fear. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just entirely wag the dog fear. It's it's not because the world is pretty. Damn crazy. And North Korea is not being run by rational people. So, uh, you know, uh, the idea, my feeling is, my God, you know, there's got to be a way other than some horrendous re, re, revamp of the Korean War, which never ended. I mean that 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 war was actually never ended, mm. and and so he doesn't. In a way, I don't know what the legalities of this are, but it's very possible that because the war was never ended, uh, that he could actually declare war upon that country without congressional approval. Yeah, and that and that is a real fear for me.
0: Well, yeah, the idea of congressional approval of war has sort of been pretty much of a joke since Vietnam, which was of course never a declared war. But I hope the listener will forgive me because I want to again go back to asking David a question about the 60s before we finish this podcast. And uh, I, uh, at some point I might get my head out of that period of time, but not for a while, not with my book coming out. And what I wanted to say is this, when I talk to people about the hippie movement and the 60s, you know, understandably, people say one of the first questions they say, "Well, wasn't Vietnam like a huge motivator of that and a big part of it?" And and the history of the protest of Vietnam is the dominant image of the late sixties, along with uh, Black Panthers and, and 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 other issues, with the other cultural things as sort of a secondary, uh, secondary cultural sideshow: the fashions, the music, and so forth. But but England was a huge part of the 60s in my, you know, undeniably. The Beatles, uh, just the British music, British fashions, uh, were extraordinarily intertwined with the fabric of what we call the 60s. And there was not a draft in, in England. You know, England may have uh, supported, in theory, the American position in Vietnam, but it was it was not at all the existential issue for young men in England. And yet, the sixties happened in England. Psychedelia happened in England. The, the the questioning of materialistic values happened there. So so so, uh, what do you what do you make of that? How do you define the the part of it that wasn't connected to Vietnam? Because clearly, that was the case in England, where there was nobody who had to worry about getting drafted, and yet they were still digging Sergeant Peppers and you know all sorts of other things.
1: That's a really interesting point that it wasn't the war there that although I, I, I was involved, my friends at, at the University of Birmingham, I we went to, we did the first be in, um, not be in, teach in, and I chaired it. So I was very involved in 1964 or 65 uh, in that, and as were thousands of other people. So the war did cast a shadow, which had actually been started in 60, uh, 62 uh, by the missile crisis. A lot of people in England were very terrified because there was a movement, CND, Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, of which I was an active member, who felt that American bases in England was suicidal and should not be allowed and marched all the time. Aldermaston was a famous place. So there was that kind of anti-American thing, which was almost totally based upon the idea that there should not be multiple American bases in England. And Khrushchev said, I will bury England as well as I will. But, you know, I mean, he said it. So... You know, that was resentful. Like, why the hell are we involved in this? But, you know, the working class artists began way before the Beatles. You know, uh, people like Kingsley Amos and Arnold Wesker and the, the, what they called the, you know, the, sort of those movies, Saturday night and Sunday morning, the sporting life with people like Albert Finney and, 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 and great actors who suddenly were playing working class heroes.
0: And then you had the comedy, the kind of cutting edge comedy of like The Goon Show,
1: Peter Sellers and the yeah. people that became part of Beyond the Fringe, right? Oh, yeah. Dudley Moore and Peter Cook and all those guys. And, and people like John Lennon were as uh, we were all into it. Because it was, we were all felt that you know the the time had come when the working class had to have a voice. Mm. Because England was so classist and so based. The BBC, you know, people love it now. You know, Downton Abbey, blah blah blah. At that time, we all despised it mm. because you know I was there. You we know, were coming to you from Alexandra Palace, BBC Central Broadcasting, and we're going to have a conversation about gardening. You know, and we just thought this is crazy. The world's going mad and And the BBC is completely and totally not into it. And the newspapers, well, The Guardian was the Manchester Guardian at that time and had something of a proletarian mm. perspective. But The Telegraph and The Times did not represent any of us. Mm. And we had one channel on TV until fairly late in the game. Then we had two. And neither of them uh, were particularly trenchant on the on the political problems of the time. So the working class rose in in many ways before any other country. Remember, the Industrial Revolution started in England pretty much in Manchester in the 1820s, 1830s. It had a long history, the unions had a long history, mm. so it meant that there was an undercurrent of discontent and rebellion. So John Lennon, uh, you know, working class hero, those things, very heartfelt by him, and I believe that the great love of him that exists now is not entirely about, you know, uh, psychedelics and 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 terrific self-analysis a lot of it is based on the fact that john was and remained a person who was who cared about what was happening to the mass of people
0: cool all right uh good way to end thanks david